and welcome to How to Launch an Industry, brought to you by Marku and Aurora, bridging the gaps between business, science, and consumers in cannabis and psychedelics. I am Jehan Marku, your lead moderator for the group discussion today. And as usual, I'm joined by Dr. Nigam Aurora. Hello, everyone. As well as David Valencourt from the GMP Collective. Hey, good day. And joining us again is Dr. Jackie Von Tom, co-founder and CSO at Solera Inc. Hello. Thanks for joining us. And joining us for the first time, Dr. Franklin King, a psychiatrist at Massachusetts General, also director of training and education at the Center for Neuroscience of Psychedelics. Great to have you on the show. Great to be here. Awesome. So, listener, we have a terrific show for you for our popular news science. We're going to talk about a doctor who's suing the DEA. We're going to talk about exciting news out of Japan, as well as um, a hallucinogenic sensor that can predict whether or not drugs will interact with certain receptors. For our peer-reviewed section, we'll discuss an article authored by Dr. David Nutt and Carhartt Harris, Psychedelic Psychiatry's Brave New World, as well as another peer-reviewed article on whether or not researchers are using the right terms to denote recreational cannabis users. This study is hilarious. You definitely want to stick around for that. And then joining us is special guest, Sarah Russo is going to be playing Guess the Herb to promote her new graphic novel, Herbs for the Apocalypse. All right, and we'll be right back. Now it's time for us to peruse and discuss some news and popular science articles. This is the non-peer-reviewed portion of the show, and away we go. So our first story is one I like to call, The Doctor Will Sue You Now, and it's about the DEA psilocybin lawsuit. So in support of a cause led by State Attorney General, Civil Rights Organization, and Academics, Amicus briefs, friends of the court, meant to provide additional expertise on an issue pertaining to a palliative care physician who has filed a lawsuit against the DEA contesting its decision to ban the use by terminally ill patients. So basically, in uh, in Dr. Sunil Agarwal, who basically you know runs this Advanced Integrative Medical Science Institute, um, uh, applied. Requested permission from the DEA to use psilocybin on patients suffering uh, from anxiety or depression. His request came under the right to try, which is observed by the federal legal system, as well as Washington State, uh, where he practices. In February, one month later, the DEA responded with a letter arguing that the exemption had not be granted because psilocybin is categorized as a Schedule One substance. And the appeal and amicus briefs came forward. And remember, Dr. Argawal has the support of state attorney generals. Basically, they argued, uh, Dr. Agarwal in particular, long-term friend, potential friend of the show, argued that the DEA, quote, overstepped the limits of its authority in failing to recognize that the right to try act requires allowing access to eligible investigational drugs, regardless of their status under the Controls Substances Act. Um, the D, uh, to quote the state attorneys, uh, quote, DEA's decision conflicts with a subsequent and more specific federal right to try act and with the Supreme Court's admonition that the Controlled Substances Act should not be used to regulate medicine. A number of other institutions and coalitions and experts also filed supporting amicus briefs, friends of the court briefs, 
um, including the Cato Institute, the American Civil Liberties Unions, the End of Life Washington, the Washington Psychological Association, um, past presidents of the American Academy of Hospice and Palliative Care, and so on. I could continue on with the list, but we only have a certain amount of time. So this seems like something really unique. Um, but I wanted to maybe go, you know, Dr. Valenslam, Jackie, you know, you work in the psychedelics industry. Um, you know, is this because what's going to happen have to happen? Uh, clinical practice to clinical practice to get, you know, patients access to this under supervision care, supervised care. I mean, just share us like some of your thoughts on this, what seems like a historic legal battle. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously this is all just sort of my opinion. I've never really worked in anything regulatory on that level. In my current position, we do have DEA approval through the university to work with some of the things that we work on. Um, however, I know that with something like the Right to Try Act specifically, um, it is pretty surprising to me that they would try to deny this, um, especially when that's been around for a long time. We know sort of what that entails and what you should be allowed to do with that. Um, obviously, scheduling does regulate a lot of medicines and pharmaceuticals in general. I mean, I, I can't just go to a GMP manufacturer and say, hey, make this drug for me if it's a schedule one. Um, they do have to jump through a lot more hoops for those things. So it's it's not surprising that that exists, but it is surprising that they would think that the right to try act would suddenly not work in that case. Um, there's obviously a lot of scheduled substances that are already approved by the FDA that have been on the market for decades. So um, it is it is surprising that in this case, it was tried to <laughs> try to retract the situation. Um, I don't know if it was maybe they were just associating it with maybe the natural product, thinking it was because it was more associated with mushrooms in some way or some other type of substance, rather than recognizing that that pure compound is in phase two clinical trials currently. And um, so I'm not sure. You'd hope there would not be that kind of confusion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, it seems like something the DEA should know really well. And I don't know if DEA is still suffering from the brain drain they experienced when all the opioid manufacturers hired like everyone there. And they're still like, we just don't have experts anymore because Big Pharma keeps hiring them right out of the DEA. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> that's a that's a little backhanded uh, thing. You could read all about that in um, you know, if you if you read about the prescription drug epidemic, it's a real issue, and they've passed new laws. And so we, I, I tend to see it everywhere. Like, wow, the DEA is really struggling with having um, experts, especially legal experts these days, to just provide the right guidance. Um, you know, Dr. Franklin King, I'd like to go to you and. and ask a deceptively simple question. <laughs> and that is, um, do you think this is common just in general? Do, have you seen this in your work as, as, a, as a, you know, a medical doctor in the field? Is, is, this thing, is this type of thing common where a doctor might be fighting with federal agencies to get access to a product just for one or two patients? Or is this as unique as we might be led to believe by um, this announcement? I mean, I think it's fairly unique. I'm, I couldn't comment on every situation, and I don't know if every case where a doctor is suing the DEA or some government agency to prescribe something makes it to the news. Certainly, suing for psilocybin will, given the climate of the times. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I, I think I would move this just to sort of note that clearly I think there's a disconnect at this point between federal policy and what we know. 
um, you know, in answering that question as a physician, um, I, I certainly can't say that, you know, psilocybin and other psychedelics are risk-free compounds. They most certainly are not. And I think when they're used therapeutically, and that includes uh, for end-of-life related distress, which includes existential anxiety and depression uh, and stuff that I actually did a medical psychiatry fellowship. We dealt with this all the time. It's very, very difficult to treat. A lot of work was done in the 60s and early 70s with this, particularly in Maryland. Um, some really promising work and some promising stuff out of NYU and Hopkins. So I think it's promising when used in a safe therapeutic structure. And clearly there is a disconnect between the federal policy and what we know. That doesn't mean that they need to be legalized. Uh, you know, I can't comment on that one way or another. It just means that there is enough evidence, I think, to support a lot more research and potentially what Canada has done, which is granting some compassionate use clauses for certain patients, which we're not quite there yet in this country. Yeah. And, and, and by legalization, I assume you mean it's not available at, at Rite Aid where you can pick it up next to the ibuprofen, right? It's, it's, it's right. Well, I mean, I, yeah. Yeah. Sorry. I mean, I, I think... Um, the physicians who might want to give their patients who are suffering from uh, end-of-life related distress. Uh, this is not something that I would ever endorse that somebody who is in that situation would just take psilocybin. I mean, the way that it's been shown to be helpful in those studies is in sort of the setting of a therapeutic structure, which is a whole nother can of worms we might get into later in the show, which is that, you know, even if psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy were approved by the FDA and rescheduled right now, there's like 200 people who are actually trained and certified to do this kind of work across the whole United States. So it's really the way that these drugs seem to work therapeutically is within a structure that hardly anybody actually is trained to do for patients, which is a huge challenge given how close we probably are to approval. Uh, thank you, Franklin. Um, Nigam, I'd like to go to you next. And again, I'm going to ask, you know, a similar question. Um, you know, what, what is your response to this? Do you think uh, other countries are going to follow suit um, with, um, you know, either blocking or allowing patients to use this? Again, when we talk about use, we're talking under clinical and appropriate supervision. I think it's just kind of implied when we're talking. We're not talking about, oh, I found a shaman on Craigslist and I'm going to go over there about seven o'clock. It's going to be fine. Uh, right. We're, we're talking about professional settings, meeting what guardrails, what standards exist these days for administering these products under, again, clinical supervised things. But your response to this, again, similar to what I'm asking, uh, what I asked Franklin, is this commonplace? I think there's two, there's kind of two angles I'm looking at. One is I completely agree with what Franklin is saying about the need for like a proper therapeutic setting in these cases, right? For end of life care, for um, the, the, the kind of thing that directly Dr. Uggerwall is working on here. Um, the other thing is like this kind of process where there's just seems to be an extended period of time. There seems to be this like mandatory excessive period of time for any compound to move along through the federal scheduling or regulations to allow for reasonable usage by people. Now, Jehan, you do this thing where you frame things in a fun way, but you actually said something really potent there about like the Craigslist shaman. Here's what happens and here's why this is bad, that there's people 
who will read about this um, being efficacious or they'll hear about it or whatever. They can't get it from their doctor, their family member who's having end of life issue or whatever can't get it from their doctor. And then they're going to go to the, the, you know, can't see me. I'm putting air quotes here. Craigslist shaman, or you're going to get it off the street. or You're going to try it. You're, people will start doing exactly what Franklin said not to do, right? <laughs> to use it outside of the supervised, trained, um, you know, medical setting. So I guess really what I'm getting at is the proper setting, the proper compliance does matter for this type of care and adjusting the regulations so that you know, honest, normal people who are seeking medical care from their licensed professional don't feel the need to go outside that system. So I think it's important to kind of bring that up. Yeah, absolutely, Nigam. Great comments uh, all around. So now the last person to comment on this, big pressure, David Valancourt. Um, you know, you know, as a guy who's going out there doing GMP stuff, looking at standards, someone who lives their life by looking at an operation and assessing if they're following standards, should they be granted licenses, should they be granted access to this based on the rules they're following? You know, do you have concerns about this response from the DEA? Share us some of your thoughts. Yeah, you know, as it released to kind of standards, and I'd almost go back to what Franklin mentioned in terms of, uh, you know, education and training. And, you know, my initial thought was, well, geez, you know, physicians, PhDs, you know, what do you go through? Minimum uh, post-secondary education, right? We're talking seven to 11 years, right? And of course, that's, you know, that's one step. And then you mentioned, you know, I think it's a unique perspective to remind ourselves that you learn very little um, during that, that you know, post-secondary education in terms of psychedelic treatment and whatnot, because this is an emerging science and you mentioned maybe 200 people being trained to do it. But Still, what what comes to mind about this is the fact that this is a lack of science informing policy continually. And I don't know if the DEA, um, I don't know if anybody's answers regarding the amount of scientists that are involved in the DEA, if it really is just law enforcement or who's influencing helping guide policy, but it's just a, you know, for better, or for worse, in this case, I'd say for worse, um, you know, where the DEA is kind of doing their job of, you know, this is how Schedule 1 has been defined, even though the disconnect is so clear, as you guys just mentioned. I mean, we've got multiple phase two clinical trials, and that flies in the face of the definition of a Schedule 1, yet we're still unwilling to, again, have science-informed policy. And, um, you know, until we figure out how to reconcile that. Um, I don't know that a group with a name with the word enforcement and their um, agency definition is really you know, situated or their mission is aligned to you know, adopt science-informed policy. But until we start, start bucking that, um, this is just a continued challenge. It seems like we're going to continue to have, unfortunately. Um, and maybe that ties into our next article, which I'll yeah. come back to you, yeah. John. I just want to. I just wanted to just say for the for the listener, everyone was just nodding their head. You can't see us; we're all just like nodding as Dave was talking. So that's a vibe over here. <laughs> Not along on your podcast. Just don't let your earbuds <laughs> fall out. All right, and you know, and and to David's point, sometimes we see data inform policy and update decades old health policy. Um, I still prefer to get all my medical treatments based on a hundred year old medicine and philosophy back before, you know, we had the FDA and things like that, but some people like modern approaches. Um, and that brings us to our article from Sora news 24 Sora, the Japanese sky. This is a news source and it's on the Japanese government 
is easing the prohibition of cannabis-derived medicines. And it sounds exactly as you said. And David, I have a question. I want to go to you first about this. And that's so basically, after months of discussions, the Japanese Ministry of Health, Labor, and Welfare is set to approve the use of products containing cannabis as an ingredient in Japan. Now,、um, what is interesting is it looks like this prohibition is going to allow Japanese pharmaceutical makers, perhaps other licensees. Uh, to produce cannabis-based medications of their own. Now we have this clean slate in the beautiful islands of Japan. David, what would be like your top two, three things if Japan again was going to start licensing manufacturers? Like, you know, obviously it'd be great. I think for you to get some work out there, I'd be <laughs> happy to come along as your assistant and tour facilities. But you know, you you have like this, you know, kind of virgin cannabis licensing program. What are some things that they should be considering? Yeah, well, I'm I'm cautiously optimistic that they've you know maybe looked at again data and science. They've probably looked at you know Health Canada. I know Japan, EU, Canada, and the U.S. have pretty good relationships on the pharmaceutical side. So, kind of driving you know whether it's you know GMP natural product standards, right? Good manufacturing practices and natural health products. Some sort of botanical. Hybrid combination between that and like a full, you know, API active right, which stands for active pharmaceutical ingredient model, which you know, for better or for worse, we are kind of stuck in here in the U.S.、Um, but without going down that diatribe, you know, my recommendation is really <clears throat> they're they're starting low and going slow. I think which is similar to how we recommend as you know, or as、uh, qualified physicians or medical、uh, advisors. Recommend to patients, so they're not just jumping into a full adult use or anything crazy. But it's you know, a strict medical market, and、um, hopeful that they'll learn from you know Canada and the number of states as well as you know, many other countries、uh, as they develop their program. But again, this comes back to I'm excited. Science informing policy、uh, seems to be taking the win here, and you know I don't know Japan's stru- governmental structure, but it seems like they don't have. A DEA agency or similar that's you know kind of stymieing the potential growth based on again science. Yep. Thank you, David. Now,、uh, I, I agree with that. I mean, I really hope that they can learn from what other countries and programs have done. There's definitely been some policy lessons and sort of a, a, a crawl, walk, run approach、It、might be really a benefit for public health. Uh, but Nigam, I wanted to go to you. You know, the first question probably people are wondering is, "Great, now I can go to Tokyo and smoke weed everywhere."、Uh, woohoo! Party time in Electric City. Is that true? Is that what this law does now? It's like just walk the streets and smoke weed in in Japan. So it it actually is not, and that's a good question to clarify. So. Uh, I can share a little bit more detail from the article. This is specifically for pharmaceutical companies wanting to utilize、uh, cannabinoids, cannabinoid-like molecules, that kind of thing. We we can for people following the industry, I think we can consider this like Japan saying, "Let's have a domestic GW Pharma in Japan." That it's it's that kind of thing, which can't can't really blame them. And、uh, now to answer your direct question, Jayhan. They've actually kind of in in seems like at the same time, and I didn't read the the letter of the law or whatever. We're just reviewing this article that, that's posted in the show notes. But、um, in fact, the recreational use、um, or consumption of cannabis, it seems like they have increased the penalties. And prior, there was 
specific penalties for cultivation or um, possession, and now they're making smoking it itself a, a crime as well. So, you know, we're seeing the the, the pharmacide, the you know that similar to FDA pathway side opening up in Japan, and that's excellent. But we're not at all seeing a liberalization of adult use, recreational consumption, um, availability of flour or products that we would see similar to U.S. dispensaries. We're we're not seeing that at all. So one shift we're getting, and the other seems to kind of still be still be stuck. So. We'll see how that goes. Right. Thank you, Nigam. Yeah. And I mean, uh, this article has, uh, you know, links and you can look in the show notes for it, but there is a story about uh, uh, someone smuggling cannabis in hot dogs, which um, are my two favorite things to consume. Ha ha ha. Just kidding. Um, I come back to not asking how the sausage is made. Yeah. (laughs) Don't ask how your cannabis product is made. Um, (laughs) Dr. King, I wanted to ask you a little bit. You know, here we have again, much like as David, there's this new program being started, new products. What should people consider? Um, while you know the personal re- recreational adult use laws aren't changing, it's still permitted there. We have this new substance that's coming into a society, and I first thing I think about is training and education, either for the people working for the licensed companies or for the health professionals that are going to be dealing with people who want to use these substances. So I was wondering if you could just kind of, when a society, a culture, a country introduces a new substance, what sort of things should they be considering in regards of education and training? I mean, I think going incrementally, even though I'm not a huge fan of advocating for incrementalism in general, um, but I, I do think that that's the way to go. And the reason for that is that we as a civilization, I mean, the West or the Western civilization has had a certain relationship with psychoactive substances in general, with the exception of alcohol, where we really have, we've had one way of thinking about them. You know, we have the DEA, we have substances, almost everything that's psychoactive is either completely illegal or mostly illegal and very tightly controlled and only prescribable in certain settings. And that really just sort of distorts the way the whole culture thinks about psychoactive compounds in general. And there's been political forces that have really distorted the research, which has been lopsided. So, you know, for many years, if you wanted to prove or find evidence to support the fact that cannabis was bad, you would get funding for it. If you wanted to support the fact that cannabis was good, it would be much more difficult to do a study for that. And so even most of what we know about cannabis, uh, I'm not saying that it's good or bad. I'm just saying that the actual research that's been done is very limited. So in terms of what we actually would want to teach society or teach health professionals, I think just going slowly, I think being open-minded, I think taking a non-politically biased lens and just trying to find the evidence that we actually do have. And this is very difficult to do, but you know, I mean, one thing you could do if you're, you know, the medical board of Japan is you could commission a team of nonpartisan scientists to really go through the evidence. What do we know about cannabis and put that into medical school and residency training curricula? Um, you're not going to have a whole lot of evidence, but that's a start. All right. Thank you. I think that's a great start, you know, integrating this into education and practice, you know, don't unleash all the products on society and then go back and try to get medical schools to start teaching about them 
because you know as we'll discuss later in the show the terminology changes so quickly that what academics might call one product is not something that's used in in the real world so i, I definitely think education with the program and access to products kind of needs to go in, in in lockstep with each other um uh, jackie i wanted to ask you a little bit about japan um you know is is cannabis going to be a good fit for Japan? I mean, you know, some societies and cultures love pharmaceutical products. Others have rich, you know, natural products that they source. Just shed some light on what you think um, this reflects about Japan or what comes to mind when you think of cannabis-containing products soon to be available in Japan. Yeah, so I actually have a pretty interesting, I'd say, interest in Japan. I took Japanese for six semesters in college, and I was oh. really into that culture for a long time. Um, Konnichiwa! Ohayo yeah. gozaimasu! <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I ended up, and then also being a natural products chemist by training for a long time, most of the natural products research actually tends to come out of um, Japan for marine natural products, which is one thing I did. And even, um, I do have you know, German family and Germany is also great with natural products and sort of regulating just botanicals in general. So I guess my perspective for Japan is, is one that I would hope that their rich history of natural products chemistry and science will really help benefit them as they go down this path. I hope that, you know, they'll be able to really start regulating it maybe in a way similar to Germany, which has done a very good job with dietary supplements and botanicals and regulation in general. Um, the other would be that, you know, Japan has struggled with a lot of mental health in their society for a long time. And maybe the word struggled isn't correct. I, I don't want to make it too harsh. Um, but they there's there's also a rich history of even seppuku for you to commit suicide or for, you know, just different levels of things that I think make that culture so unique mentally compared to a lot of other places. And the the way that they really honor certain levels of respect and people and and what they see as life and death is just very unique. So I, I know they're really strict about even what medications they allow for mental health. They're not, a, they're not big advocates for any pharmaceuticals for mental health at all, but they also have extremely high suicide rates. <clears throat> so, you know, I would hope that maybe this path will help start to shed some light on that aspect of their society and, and maybe help them really work on um, maybe opening up a, the opportunity that this could really allow for some of their um, younger generation. Jack, I just had a little follow-up, just a kind of natural, you know, and we're going to review shortly in, in rapid fire science about um, psychedelics and how they work in the brain, mental health, psychiatry, this kind of stuff. So Jackie, just if, I don't know if you're tracking or not, are we seeing, is the psychedelics renaissance happening in Japan too? Is, is this something that's on, on the cards there or not really based on what you're saying? I'm, I'm really curious to learn. At least from my perspective, not really. I, I haven't at least heard about it a lot. I don't live in Japan. You know, I, I'm not actually in the culture all the time, obviously. But um, just from how sort of from their perspective on a lot of these things, governmentally and just historically, I would say probably not. Um, I mean, which is a real shame too from a mushroom perspective, because a lot of the greatest chemistry research on just mushrooms and fungi in general come out of Japan and China. So. I would hope that, you know, even some of that research might go further, but I, I have not seen a big sort of jump in the wave of psychedelics from there. I mean, obviously their closest neighbor that I've seen a lot out of maybe is Australia, but I haven't seen a lot in Japan. 
Oh, Tun Pai, Jackie, and we're just going to say sayonara to this article. Uh, because, <laughs> uh, we're going to move to talking about, speaking of psychedelics, and um, I want to talk about this article from UC Davis Health. has uh, covered a recent discovery, basically a what's called a psych light sensor to enable discovery of new psychiatric drugs. So a genetically encoded sensor has been developed to detect hallucinogenic compounds by researchers at the University of California, Davis's, Davis. Um, and they've named it PsychLite. And the sensor might be able to use in discovering new treatments for mental illness and neuroscience to detect drugs of abuse. And, and the overall work was published um, uh, recently in Cell, in an article entitled Psychedelic Inspiring Drug Discovery Using an Engineered Biosensor. I, mean, I found you know, this really interesting, and I think my favorite thing and most inspiring thing about this is not only did I go to like grade school and middle school in Sacramento, just down the road from UC Davis, but um, as a former grad student uh, myself, this quote that says, this collaboration was really driven by grad students. Um, from a professor at the UC Davis School of Medicine. I mean, I think that's really fantastic. Here we have grad students, they don't have letters after their name, who have made potentially a huge innovation in the field. Um, you know, Jackie, I wanna get you know, your thoughts on this discovery. I mean, just on the surface of it, you know, if it was affordable, is this, would this be an instrument you'd want in your lab? Or do you have some more questions about how it works? Um, or, or you know, are you excited about this innovation? Could you see integrating this technology um, into product development? Or, or is this just sort of a little fun toy for the academic lab? What are your thoughts? Uh, I guess kind of all of the above right now, because uh, um, I do have, you know, excitement about it to a certain extent. Some of the research, especially we're doing at Solera, is trying to reduce some of the 5-HT2A activity while maintaining a lot of the other beneficial aspects of certain psychedelics. So um, it was really nice to see when this was published because for us, it was sort of a great direction in our current hypotheses we have for some of our research. Um, I will say I'm interested to know, and I, I haven't dived deeper into the research itself, which I'm sure would tell me the answer to this, but um, is how they're really looking at, um, is it just antagonism, you know, of the receptor? I guess I'm interested in sort of like, is it, I, I guess I didn't look enough to know if it was just agonist versus antagonist, that sort of thing, because it, it, it is interacting with 2A in some way, potentially, because we have a lot of antagonists on the market that uh, obviously don't necessarily produce the head twitch, but they're still active on other receptors. So I guess that was one of my questions. Um, the second aspect of it is, yes, uh, you know, if we had a way to be working with it, that would be great. Obviously, your alternative right now is kind of jumping straight into animal models, which can be kind of risky. Um, and, but, you know, we actually were reached out to by someone from there to see if we'd be interested. So obviously, we'll throw whatever compounds we can at it to kind of see what happens. But um, yeah, so that was my only question. I, I wasn't sure about the... Yeah. Absolutely, Jackie. And just taking a glance at one of their figures here. So they looked at 5-HT, looked at DMT, LSD, 5-MEO. And when they looked at an antagonist, um, it did not change the activity um, of the cyclite sensor, nor did it change activity that was perceptible in mice. So they kind of compared the cyclite, center, or cyclite sensor to animal models as well as 
um, at least one antagonist. Now we don't know if it works okay. the same for all of them, but they lo- they did look at at one. Um, so yeah, I think that's a terrific question. So uh, you'll let us know if your lab acquires one because we definitely <laughs> yeah. would love to do it'll a blind be, challenge with that. <laughs> yeah, it'll be in collaboration uh, with another group. But yeah, we definitely, they had already reached out and said, hey, would you send us stuff if we have that? So we'll see how oh. it goes. We'll see what happens. All right, cool. Uh, David, I wanted to ask you about this. Um, you know, in terms of now granted drug discovery, clear applications here. However, you know, do you see other potential applications of this sort of technology in the field of like standards, safety, product safety, that sort of thing, good manufacturing, you know, processes? Could, could you maybe speak to that a little bit? Yeah, man. Yeah, it's an interesting question. Um, my my take is anything that can measure, right? That can quantify, that can back to my, you know, whole pitch on data. Uh, it is is a benefit, right? So if there's applications, um, whether it's for preclinical research, whether it's just for observational research, whether you know businesses can adopt this to utilize to just drive more informed decisions, I think there's um, you know a, a whole number of benefits um, <clears throat> for application. The one thing I wanted to kind of touch on though quickly, if I could, is back to your quote though, Jehan, uh, where, you re- where you referenced the quote, uh, how this research was driven by grad students, right? And I'm reminded of my undergrad days when I was working in the, in the biogeochemistry laboratory at UMass Amherst and a shout out to my old professor, uh, Professor Petch, Steve Petch. One thing that he said to me, I think I was a sophomore or junior at the time, is how much he enjoyed having undergrads and grad students in the lab because we, you know, at the time, right, emerging uh, budding scientists, you know, we're hungry to ask questions, we're inquisitive, we're driven through the scientific process to ask questions. And that's really what leads a lot of discoveries and innovation. And you know, once we kind of get into our practices, it's easy to just, you know, we've been trained, we have our knowledge, and now we're applying it. And you start, you know, kind of getting blindfolded into, you know, this is how it's been done. This is my experiences. And that fresh perspective is really highlighted there. So I think kind of my takeaway to the, the audience that I'd like to impart is, you know, be that, you know, citizen scientist, be that person that just questions and drives for innovation and get creative because that's what drives innovation. And, you know, by working together collaboratively, like you guys have done to bring this, you know, great diverse group of people into our room for how to launch an industry um, is really what is going to pioneer um, opportunities like this with the, you know, psych light sensor. So it, it's really exciting to see that. Um, and I appreciate the professor UC Davis that gave that shout out to the emerging scientists. Absolutely. Uh, thank you, David. Um, Dr. King, I wanted to ask you just kind of your thoughts on this. And in particular, I'm wondering, you know, are we potentially going to see something like this used in Washington State or California when people are, these, these products are decriminalized and maybe they show up to their doctor saying, I'm using this and I'm feeling funny and they could screen it to see, you know, does it have an active hallucinogenic psychedelic compound in it? Um, you know, just as sort of an off the top of my head application. Um, but, you know, I just want to get at your idea of where does this fit in with education and training for psychedelics? What, does this have a role in quality of care potentially? Just what are some of you think the potential good things from these sort of techno- technological innovations could be? Well, I mean, I think any, I mean, any technological discovery is 
great and has potential applications. But I actually, and this may sound a little strange coming from someone at a center for neuroscience of psychedelics, but I, I actually think that excitement over it is sort of emblematic of some really deep problems within psychiatry, which is basically we've spent almost 40 years, 50 years now looking at psychiatric disorders as being, you know, constellations of different receptors. And we've had some advancements, but we've had very little progress since the 1990s. And there's a lot more to sort of human suffering in the brain and the mind than receptors. Point number one. And, and point number two, I think we have a tendency to kind of reinvent the wheel. And I know there's a lot of interest from a lot of companies to sort of, you know, put heavy water hydrogen and psilocybin and find, you know, new novel psychedelic compounds. But people have been using psilocybin for thousands of years. There's a million other, you know, unpatentable uh, psychedelic compounds that I believe are probably perfectly effective, but nobody's going to study them because there's no money in it. So I do feel obligated to kind of call attention to that fact. I think there's a lot of stuff that we have available right now that is kind of being underutilized and there's some reasons for it, but I, I think we should work with what we have first before getting uh, enamored with shiny new objects. But I love shiny new objects. They're yeah, so shiny. Say, I was about to say you got a you got a couple of chemists in the room, man. That's all. That's what we do, you know. But uh, yeah. So so, Doctor Rory, um, how does this thing work? Can you shed some light? You know, as a chemist, you look at reactions and things like that for your PhD. I, I mean, this is this a tricorder like from Star Trek, where we're going to beam down to Mars and be like, "Look, psychedelic rocks, Captain." Um, is there real science behind this? How does it work? So, yeah, I, I thanks for the question, Jehan. I, I did want to just elaborate a little bit. So, um, and, and it kind of goes back to what Jackie was saying in the beginning. So, from from my understanding of this paper, really, what it's doing is so they've actually built in the. Uh, fluorescent reporter, right? So there's like an actual fluorescent molecule that they've built into the receptor itself. Then what they're doing is they're binding drugs to it and drugs that bind in a way in a physical confirmation that is known to cause hallucinations that triggers the fluorescent reporter to light up. So they basically, they had all these molecules, right? They had LC, they had psilocybin, they have DMT. So they kind of understood the confirmations that the receptor took around or because of these hallucinogenic, you know, serotonergics binding. Now there's a lot of other serotonergic ligands that don't cause hallucinations. So they were also able to understand that. So um, they then used that kind of knowledge they had before to design this uh, really, it's a biosensor, right? It's a uh, receptor itself that that's showing the uh, the fluorescence or not. And then they started screening molecules against it. They started um, synthesizing molecules in house to kind of prove their point. Um, but but it really, I I just wanted to come back to the niche thing that they're looking at is not does it bind, does it not bind. They're looking at based on other molecules that we know cause hallucinations, might this cause hallucinations? And I think I do want to toss it back to, to Franklin just for a second um, on a follow-up. There's this kind of... Uh, Franklin, I really appreciate what you're saying. We have all these kind of known things like psilocybin that people have been using for thousands of years that aren't fully investigated in the in the modern you know clinical medical setting. But there's already this movement 
uh, especially with people doing like drug design, drug development, and psychedelics to limit some of the uh, hallucinogenic or the euphoric effects. We have this little like inside joke here at HLI, the little known 11th commandment, thou shall not be euphoric. Right. So, you know, God forbid uh, you have a little euphoria during your psilocybin session. So, um, and, you know, granted, there's reasons for, for people trying to limit the hallucination. Sometimes the, the patient or the user will experience fear from that. Sometimes it causes it, it makes it mandatory for the therapy sessions to happen under supervision versus, you know, maybe you could send someone home with it if it didn't make them hallucinate. So, anyways, I, I'm just curious, like, Franklin, what do you, what do you think about that? Is there, is there a medical value to limiting the hallucination? Like is the downstream process of what this sensor enables us to understand is, is it worth something? So I think I, I can say this. I mean, I, I think there's a lot of interest in the field right now to basically, um, you know, can, can we find a psychedelic that has psychedelic effects that are beneficial without basically having psychedelic effects without making people, you know, have perceptual disturbances or, or euphoria or what have you. Um, personally, you know, from what I know about psychedelics, and, and this is partly from based on what I know, and also partly based on more of kind of my opinions about what I think would be helpful for our society. So this isn't sort of all medical opinion. I, I don't think we're going to find that. I do think that it's worth studying. I think everything is worth studying. And certainly it's a research question that is worthy of finding out. Can we find, you know, 5-HT2A agonists that make people not depressed, but don't take eight hours with two therapists present? But, mm -hmm. I, you know, from what we know, I mean, there's, there's a small study from Hopkins that basically correlated the therapeutic effect of psilocybin with the degree to which it induced a mystical experience. So that's, you know, it's a little study. We got to replicate that, but that's a little piece of evidence. And I think in general, kind of more my societal thinking is that in the past, most civilizations have had non-ordinary states of consciousness built into the way they function as a culture, that those are ways of bringing people together to explore deeper understandings, to sort of explore different realms of consciousness. And that's considered a good thing. We've come away from that. So I, my, I think that in a responsible way, my hope is that psychedelics will bring that back. And I think that potentially could be useful for civilization. So I, I, I personally don't, I'm not enthusiastic about weeding out the psychedelic effect, but let's study it. Let's study it. We've got machine. Let's do it. I'm so glad you, you said that, Dr. King, because this is a time when we're hearing more and more people talk about you know, the CBD of psychedelics. Um, you know, and sometimes I think that's code for let's find something that doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> um, is there anything that works less than CBD does? Hmm, that'd be a profit maker. Um, except, of course, in high high doses in the form of a dialect. That's really the only thing it's shown to really have you know, clinical observations. So, uh, you know, thank you for that clarification. So, any any final comments before we wrap it up? Yeah, I have one. It's only because obviously a lot of our companies focused on doing some of those things. Um, specifically, we mostly work with DMT more so than psilocybin um, and derivatives of those things. But I will say it also is just dependent on what your indication or your target is. Because for us, I mean, one of our big focuses is dementia and neurodegenerative diseases, just because that's got a close place in my heart for familial reasons. So for us, if we're able to see that 
we don't necessarily need someone to be on a full DMT trip in order for them to see some of the changes in their you know brain chemistry, the cells, whatever it is we're looking for from a neurodegenerative perspective, then we might not need that. And so, and I only say that specifically with DMT because it's one of the few that's been shown at sub psychedelic dosing to still have those benefits. Um, whereas a lot of the other psychedelics, you know, so far, yeah, we're, the jury's still kind of out on whether or not lower dosing or maybe not having some of those effects is really going to do much. Um, so I think at least from my perspective, it's just really dependent on what your goal is. And that's always the case with any medicine or pharmaceutical is what are you really, you know, what are you really trying to get out of it? And so I think absolutely from a societal perspective, I think what psychedelics do is going to be so important on such a greater scale than necessarily maybe just trying to look at frontotemporal dementia. Um, so I think it's just really dependent on what you're really trying to look at or what your end goal is in the process. Absolutely, Jackie. Yeah, I like what you said about, you know, some of the effects because maybe there, you know, there are some tactile responses and sensations you want to change, but not cognitively. Maybe there's, you know, you want to induce synesthesia without intoxication. Like there might be certain effects that you want to target for different therapeutic populations. Um, but, you know, and I worry that any effect a psychedelic has is put into that, this bucket of bad, thou shall not do this. But, but I'm sorry, Franklin, you wanted to comment? Yeah, no, I just, I just want to say that that's actually a really good point. I mean, I think the, from a standpoint of, you know, all of the potential implications of neuroscientific research, there's certainly reasons to do this. And just mentioning one other example, um, I don't know exactly where this is at, but somebody who used to uh, work at McLean, where I trained for residency, McLean Hospital, developed a non-psychoactive analog of LSD. <clears throat> I think it's like 4-bromo LSD or something like that. Sold it to a German company, which has been, I think, doing clinical trials, looking at it uh, for treating cluster headaches. So there's certainly potential all over the place for, for non-psychoactive compounds, for sure. All right. Thank you, Franklin. We're going to wrap up our popular literature coverage right now. We'll be right back with Rapid Fire Science with the first article about psychedelic psychiatry, Brave New World, an extension and deeper dive into this subject. And if you're still wondering about whether or not you should be excited about the psych light sensor, Dr. Marcuse's official thing is it's a great blunt object for research. Yes or no, but in terms of dialing in specific experiences, it doesn't seem to be quite there. All right. We'll be back after the short break with Rapid Fire Science. Hi there, this is Steve Miller from Apex Gaming PCs, the place for customized and pre-configured PCs and laptops for everyone from the casual gamer to the pro. Our motto pretty much says it all. We build it like it's our own. So whether you're an after-work, during-lunch, or an in-between-classes type player, or even that content creator with thousands of subscribers, visit us at apexgamingpcs.com and use the discount code HOWTOLAUNCH, the exclusive code for listeners of How to Launch an Industry. And we're back. 
Welcome to Rapid Fire Science, where we go around providing brief commentary and discussion about peer-reviewed science articles. And our first article today is a commentary from the leading edge in Cell, and it's entitled Psychedelic Psychiatry's Brave New World, written by to three wonderful researchers, Dr. David Nutt, David Arizzo, and Robin Carhart-Harris. Um, this is a really interesting article that talks about why the psychedelic revolution in psychiatry. Now, I could read this article and summarize it for you, but we have uh, a professional from the space. So, you know, Dr. Franklin King, your thoughts on this commentary, just take it away. Sure. I mean, I, I think it's actually, it, it's a nice little um, paper that kind of summarizes some of the findings, some of the theories, and advocates for some of the future directions of the field. So, Yeah, absolutely. And um, so do you agree that, uh, you know, maybe it's different in different jurisdictions, but the researchers are saying it needs to be rescheduled to allow to foster research and therapeutic applications. You know, I, and I've heard people say that, you know, cannabis doesn't need to re, be rescheduled because it won't open the floodgates for research. Um, but some, you know, there, there's a bit of a contention around exactly what rescheduling would do. And I'm not asking you as a legal expert, but just in your experiences, you know, do you think that psilocybin should potentially have a hearing about where it should be placed outside of Schedule 1. Is, is that, or do we have enough data to have that kind of discussion, do you think, with federal agencies, or do we need to maybe generate some more data? And, and we're not going to you know, send angry tweets after your response, don't worry. So I, I think Schedule 1 means that there is no medical uses whatsoever. And mm -hmm. I, think base, I think we have enough evidence to suggest that that's probably not the case. I don't know if it has to be rescheduled for more research to occur. I think what's more important and what they're really advocating for in that paper, other than saying it needs to be rescheduled, is that we need to direct a lot more research money to the field to study psilocybin and to study related compounds. And one of the big barriers to doing that is the fact that it's schedule one, both from a regulatory standpoint, it's a huge pain and a lot of red tape to do a study. And that just scares the crap out of a lot of people where people don't want to fund research of a Schedule One compound. So I don't know if it needs to be rescheduled for it or if the government could continue holding the Schedule One and fund research, but something needs to change with more money directed at this. Absolutely. And uh, Jackie, you know, you're a chief science officer at one of the you know, leading companies in the psychedelics industry. Research is probably a big part of what drives the company, right? And so as one of I think it's just it's it's admirable that you're out there fighting the space, creating research. But maybe you could talk about, you know, there's a real world in the industry, and then there's you know academia. And so, do you think this article resonates with you? Obviously, there's a lot more here than just legal issues and and things like that. There's research issues. But do you, do you think they they did a good job in encapsulating what you know what your daily life is like in this space? Um. So I. Yeah, I think you mentioned sort of the, the two worlds that I'll call them of like academia and industry. And um, I can definitely say that Solera, we've, we've tried our hardest to navigate all of those waters equally and sort of find the best people and collaborations, whether it be 
government, academic, industry, it doesn't really matter. And the reason we did that was because we almost had to find people who have already done these things before for it to even be done in a, an efficient man- manner and even in a timely manner. Um, I can say that unfortunately, there's probably not enough of those people to be able to collaborate with all of the different companies and people now trying to do these things. And so there's definitely some big barriers if you can't, you know, find the right people to sort of help you along the way. Um, you know, we were part of a university incubator. I, there's no way we would have gotten DEA approval as quickly as we did if we didn't collaborate with an academic here and, and have that be possible. So not everyone has that capability or that opportunity in their hands to really try to do those things. And um, there's a lot of companies that as soon as you say something schedule one, they don't want to talk to you like manufacturers, big contract manufacturers and you know GMP facilities and all these people who you need to help you get through phase two and phase three clinical trials. You, you know, you maybe have a handful of options. You don't really have a lot of options. And so um, hmm. do I think that rescheduling has to happen for those options to open up? Uh, for the level of GMP manufacturing, probably. Because Schedule 1 is a, and controlled substances are a huge pain for them to deal with. So they just don't want to and they don't have to. Um, but how that'll happen, I'm not sure. I think it's it's hard when some of the data is already showing that it might not need to be schedule one and it continues to be. So at some point you're dealing with sort of a data versus opinion of some people. So, um, yeah. Yeah. A data versus opinion. Well, I think, you know, Homer Simpson said it best, right? Facts are meaningless. They can be used to prove anything that's even remotely true. Um, uh, David, you know, one thing that seems to be missing and Jackie said it, you know, she mentioned GMP, um, you know, I'm looking at this article, and I do see they have you know summary points. They talk about safety and efficacy. They talk about attracting venture investment. There doesn't seem to be much in here about, you know, obviously there's the big three, right? LSD, DMT, psilocybin, um, that people are going to be studying. But there's so much more to that, right? There could be alternative sources of these products. There could be observational work that's done on people who are, you know, we know that in California, people are gifting these products to each other. We've, we've read online <laughs> about this, you know, old church where people are meeting in sort of a psychedelic flea market in, in, I think, Oakland. I mean, and so I'm just starting to think about what, how do we know people are getting the right products? And, um, you know, if you could add a section to this article on sort of good manufacturing practices or, or safety standards or, you know, should, should ASDM start like a mushroom, you know, standards <laughs> committee? Uh, how do you respond as someone who goes out in the real world and visits facilities like the one that, you know, Jackie speaks of that manufacture and work with these products when you see this type of work that sort of leaves out that practical angle? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. I don't even know where to begin on that. That's uh, almost a loaded question in a good way. I appreciate you, get, you asking that. And, you know, I've actually had some conversations with ASTM, right? Which is a hundred, for those that don't know, 120 year old uh, nonprofit standards development organization with almost 150 technical committees. We have committee D37 on cannabis. Um, one, you know, and, and kind of trying to tie that back to your question there, Jehan, right? Is, you know, what, what's the safety profile? 
what is the standard dose? What is the range? You know, like you mentioned microdosing in there, you know, they kind of give some, you know, ideas of, you know, what certain doses are to be classified as microdosing. But until we standardize that, um, which is one of the beauties of working with, you know, the groups like, you know, Jackie's group at Silera and others that, you know, partner and recognize that there is, you know, experimental design, you know, design of experiment and, you know, having methodical controlled variables. Uh, without that, you know, one of the downfalls of, you know, the state programs, on at least in cannabis, is that it's kind of all over the place and there's no standardization. There's no, you know, what's this dose? You know, is your product in Colorado that you're trying the same when you go to the Oakland Oklahoma market or Massachusetts? The answer is just straight up no, right? Um, or at least there's a lack of data to support that the answer could potentially be yes. Um, so we really need that component. We need to understand what is you know acceptable active ingredients. What uh, you know what are the limitations on contaminants? Um, we we need that component to be able to ensure safety. Um, and you know just to uh, hopefully I'm not beating a dead horse here, but you know when we mentioned the DEA and your question about rescheduling, well. Let's just, you know, whether it's redefining what we define it, what we call schedule one, maybe, I don't know, is that an option? Because the fact that there is just period, no scientific or medical use or accepted uses, you know, as you look at the definition, it flies in the face of modern science. I mean, the fact that it's even made it into clinical phase two trials for any of these drugs or that, you know, dronabinol, epidiolex has been approved just screams, this is not schedule one. It doesn't meet the definition period, end of story. I think it's that simple. And so until we start changing that paradigm shift, we're stuck. I mean, you know, Jackie, you, you just named it. Uh, you, you called it out with how challenging it is. My last point, if I can say, you know, working with ASTM and there's federal agencies that, that are there as well as other, you know, uh, and we've got 30 countries there represented. It's fairly common for me to hear other federal agencies say, yeah, we'd love to be able to do this, but it's a pain in the butt to work with the DEA. Like it's just it. The red tape makes it almost impossible for them to do um, to f- fulfill or carry out their mission. Um, so rescheduling, redefining schedule, and something needs to give. Um, and I think we're getting there. But absolutely, David, I appreciate that. You know, it's uh, thanks for letting us down gently with the big no, but yeah. um, I I hope that could turn to a big fat yes in in the future. Um, and I would definitely love. I, so. I think a lot of us on the panelists here would love to be to be a part or see standards committees start to form around the commercialization of these products. Get ahead of it. Don't don't wait till the products are on the market and and widely consumed. Um, but but Nigam, I want to go to you. You know, you're a chemist. You know how to mix things up to get a reaction. <laughs> so I want to ask you about for something provocative in this paper. Now, you know, it had a lot of interesting things like why are the effects so enduring? Are the psychedelics effects necessary? Is it all just pharmacology? I want to say, like, what did you distill out of this article that you feel is potent? Yeah, so there there were a few potent things. There's just you know just for sake of time, I'm just going to bring up one right now. So uh, for the reader, there's a section um, on the third page of the article. How much is quote just pharmacology? And we go back to kind of what uh, Franklin and I were kind of pinging back and forth before in the show about um, do you need the hallucinogenic part? Do you need the mystical part? Uh, do you need the psychotherapy? Well, I remember before, I think it was when uh, Deb Kimless was on the show and we were like talking about, there was some article and we we're like, 
is it i think i asked her is it just the psychotherapy do you even need the drug like can people just talk about their feelings and you know and can we just move past this so anyways the as kind of background the thing that stuck out to me in this article in this section how much is just pharmacology they're kind of hitting at this thing like does the talk therapy really help or is it just a drug do you need the combo and they're proposing here that a way to understand that would be to dose someone with a you know classic psychedelic LSD psilocybin so on during like while they're under anesthesia so they're basically like let's eliminate all possibility of any talking or kind of like <laughs> you know therapy in that realm going on and let's just see if purely the drug can you know solve whatever their yep. ailment or issue is so or just yeah, because like, uh, uh, if the patient isn't talking, they're not complaining. So therefore, <laughs> you know, the there is solved. the... <laughs> <laughs> so, anyways, I just thought that that was... I, I honestly, like, I'm not... This isn't, you know, exactly... Um, it, it's, it's hard for me to, like, even speak further on it. But I thought it was kind of an interesting thing where the rest of the paper seemed, as, as Franklin said pretty cleanly in the beginning, like, it's a good summation. It hits a lot of these kind of current points in the, in the industry. But this one kind of kind of got me in it and i'm i'm curious like if, if anyone else has kind of a comment on that is that is that like an appropriate thing to do or are we going to oh. learn in a meaningful way from that is that gonna is that gonna provide well, some evidence that oh we don't need talk therapy anymore i mean couldn't you just put someone in a room by themselves and get the equivalent without doping him up on anesthesia <laughs> like, couldn't <laughs> just you just have be alone like why isn't but that like, even i think even that could be like a like almost like a reverse talk therapy. Think about like how like when you're having like a, a hard time talking to someone is nice. It, it helps, right? Yeah, but that's I think, like saying I can't talk inside my brain to myself. Right, but it's like... Uh, I, think, I, I think there's a difference between like being with a person or people and talking, being alone and almost like trapped. You know, there, there can be that feeling of like, oh no, I'm trapped. And then... Right. The anesthesia thing is like all it, it, like theoretically it, like it kind of makes sense, but it's like almost extreme, you know. Yeah. Well, uh, Franklin, you're you're the most professional medical person here. You're a medical doctor. Does this resonate with you, or you know, with this anesthesia psychedelics comment? Um, I mean, it seems kind of far out if I can use that term talking about psychedelics. So actually, uh, a friend of mine in residency back in, I don't know, like 2016, 2017, we used to talk about this, that somebody theoretically could do a study where you put people under general anesthesia and give them a psychedelic compared to people that didn't get general anesthesia. Not that we were planning to do that. Um, I don't, I mean, I think there's a lot of clear ethical problems with doing that, but I also think that doesn't, that's not necessarily going to prove things because general anesthesia has a lot of effects on the brain, which is why it's an anesthetic and it disrupts consciousness as well. So I don't know that you would get a definitive answer by anesthetizing people and then giving them psilocybin. Um, it, it's a good question. It's a provocative question. Um, I, I, I think the jury is still out. I mean, personally, I think we will find that these are experience-based treatments and the therapy is going to be critical. Uh, but, you know, there's companies like the Field Trip, for example, that and Robin Carr Harris himself are uh, developing apps to basically be cell phone guides for people once psychedelics in the future become legal. So, you know, can that take the place of a therapist? 
Um, I would say one more thing. I mean, they did try locking people in rooms back in the 60s and 50s. Occasionally, there were some really horribly designed LSD studies where they'd give people tons of LSD and tie them to the bed, put a blindfold on, blindfold on them and not give them any therapy uh, for yeah. alcohol use. And they were not successful. And I don't think people had a very good time. No, and I, I yeah, I've read some of those. And that's why, that's why I was, I don't know. It just, yeah, it seems terrifying, but. It's uh, it's like I could see the clinician now. When we lock them in the room for eight hours with a <laughs> blindfold and time to a bed, I have a feeling my theory is they will develop a deep resentment for us. <laughs> like, I mean, what did you think was going to happen even without a psychedelic? Um, it sounds that sounds terrible. Um, all right, so I'm going to just do like an auctioneer final comments. Going once, going twice. We are moving to our next article, which is one uh, listener. If you have a chance to look in the show notes and look at this, this article is one of the funniest I've read in a while. It's called, Are Researchers Getting the Terms Used to Denote Different Types of Recreational Cannabis Right? A user uh, perspective published in the Journal of Cannabis Research. Um, so basically, the they thought out to, the researchers wanted to see like, um, they looked at pretext responses from one question in a survey regarding the type of cannabis used, strain names, and things like that. So let me just, for, for sake of time, let me just say, so like there would be a question like, what type of cannabis do you use the most? And these are the little literal choices for 2021, right? Are hash, cannabis resin slash solid, imported herbal cannabis, like it's beer or something like, oh yeah, I got this, um, homegrown skunk. Sinsamia follows that term, or or super skunk. So you know, and also synthetic cannabis, um, such as black mamba. Um, now, someone who studied synthetic cannabinoids, I am struggling to even understand what they thought about. Um, and, and they also had thing again, like other. Is there a specific brand? Please specify. So people responded to this treatment, mm -hmm. uh, or to the not just treatment, but to the survey with what you might think is. Um, you know, users who are rate themselves as experienced responded with things like, what is homegrown skunk or super skunk? You need to get the terminology right before you publish this. That's coming from the non-scientists. Um, you know, and, and again, like everyone is like, what is skunk? What is super skunk? I don't even know what this is. Could you define it? Not sure what skunk, skunk is. And the criticism, which I thought was interesting, um, is that the participant said, and this is just one part of the survey. And I'm interested to see what, what stood out for other people. One part was like, the producers were like, this is what's used in the media. Like, this is just a, a buzzword that you idiots learned. And they even refer to the questions as idiotic, um, you know, in the thing. So, uh, you know, I could go on picking this apart. I mean, not picking it apart, but just like, every, this has such tasty morsels in it. it. It is like the most quoting, it's like the most quoting potent article I've read in a while because they actually posted the comments from the participants about their thoughts on the study. But, you know, Nigam, am I being unfair here? I mean, I'm obviously cherry picking from the article, but what are your thoughts? What did I'm you gonna, find in this? I'm going to, I'm going to pick one cherry with you and then I'll just say a comment. Um, so there's like one of these comment or one of these uh, lines from the article about like the, the respondents kind of not liking this nomenclature. So they say there are thousands, there are a thousand and one strains available. Skunk is one of them. It's like calling your vacuum cleaner a Hoover, even if it's made by Dyson. <laughs> So I think it's kind of like a funny consumer thing to say something more general. Um, 
this this is a huge problem. Uh, even like I'll, I'll say something else. Anyone who's worked in the licensed cannabis supply chain and used metric, um, there's this thing in metric where you th- this is a track and trace software that you know state governments use to make sure there's not um, people basically like taking legal cannabis outside into the illegal market and stuff like that. So, anyways, but within metric, when you bring in a new cannabis product to your facility, you can literally just change the name in the computer and now it's official. So you you could take, you know, skunk and you could rename it Blue Dream and sell it in your dispensary as Blue Dream. And that and nobody's stopping you. There there's absolutely nothing to stop you. So not only are the names, you know, of all these different strains or the categorizations, is there, you know, mismatched state by state, um, you know, states that are just are still in pure prohibition. So there's a lot of layers to the issue. And then on top of it, even in the regulated market, the names aren't standardized. So Issues for researchers and consumers are, are, are just abundant here. So while the paper is kind of fun and kind of funny, um, it does raise a really important uh, point. You know, we could talk more about it. I um, uh, so I'll, I'll pass the mic off, but we um, we do yep. need to jump into our game soon enough. So I, yep. I'm curious if anyone else has like brief comments on it. Yeah. yeah so uh, go ahead, David. <laughs> Uh, Yeah, if I can jump in, I mean, uh, I think my passion for terminology and standardization got in the way of, uh, you know, finding the humor, although rereading it and looking at, you know, the the comments, as you called out, Nigam, with the the skunkiness um, strains is just, uh, wow. Yeah. Um, But, you know, from, from a scientific perspective, and there's a challenge, right? Let's just paint the picture. There's a challenge between marrying science and kind of marketing to general consumers. Um, you know, general consumers don't understand, or I wouldn't expect them to understand the term chemovars or chemotypes, right? And that's, you know, I'd like to give a plug for the U.S. Pharmacopoeia's, uh, you know, Cannabis Expert Committee that published the Cannabis Quality Attributes paper in 2020. And they looked at, again, data, sorry for the dead horse comment there, but, um, you know, and defined that there's three chemovars, right? There's the type 1, type 2, type Three, and it's based on the THC to CBD ratios, which they do mention in that paper, right? Um, they do kind of talk about, I think it was 2-1, where, you know, alternative, they, they classified it as their language was alternative method of categorization that was suggested seemed to be based on THC CBD ratio. Well, yes, the data suggests that that is the primary mechanism at which we should be characterizing different cannabinoid or different cannabis uh, genetics or strains. And then from there, we really need to, you know, Nigam, you, you really highlighted it. What's Blue Dream in Colorado, California, Maryland, et cetera. We, until we standardize that, we're kind of just stuck with uh, this wild, wild west. And it doesn't help cannabis researchers. It doesn't help consumers. It definitely underpins, sorry, uh, you know, the need for standardization uh, more yeah. and more. And, yeah. And- Go ahead, Jackie. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say, I only have like two quick comments on it. Uh, the first is I did a lot of sort of the chemovar kind of comparisons and I did a lot of research just on different terpene and terpenoid analysis of cannabis and different strains. And obviously it's the chemistry sort of all over the place, um, which is difficult for any kind of attempt at categorizing anything um, in the space. Uh, but I will say, I guess the one that's the not so funny side, like you said before. <laughs> the, the funny side of the article, which I will comment on, is I think my favorite was butterweed with coffee equals relaxing. <laughs> I don't I have no idea what that 
But you know, I think it just yeah. That that was Whoa. my favorite comment. So I just want to say that. Is that the yeah, new my, indica? My, is that the new yeah. indica? Butterweed plus coffee. <laughs> and I want to say that the scientist did such a good job. It's like the range of responses is as follows below, and it's like question is idiotic and misinformed, as are a few others already answered. No option for vaporizing, dabbing, and the method of consumption. Question. That's how. Um, you know, where it is. And, and Franklin, with our, our remaining time, I kind of wanted to get your, you, you feel free to respond to this prompt or ignore it entirely. But I thought, you know, one of the things the authors say in their discussion is, quote, that their data underscores the importance of public involvement in understanding cannabis terminology to ensure that the terms used are deemed credible by both people who use cannabis um, as well as researchers. And I, I just can't help but think, but as a director of training and education, in the realm of psychedelics for health professionals, this has to be an issue too. Um, so I, I just either response to that or your response to the article, I'd love to hear. I think, I, I mean, I, I can partially respond to that and I'll make it quick, but I think first and foremost, that that article is kind of emblematic of, of a need um, to sort of heal a growing problem that we have across a wide variety of sort of medicine and research where there's a divorcement between what the public actually does and how what they do is understood by the people that study that behavior. And a great example is substance use and kind of drug policy and the way it shaped the medical establishment's understanding of substance use, which is basically just like every single drug is the same and like the severity of the addiction is just determined on the quantity of use. Now, most physicians, I think, could sit with a patient and discuss different wines and craft beer and different whiskey types, um, but they really are just, I mean, it's famous and it's been well-documented that physicians cannot talk to their patients about substance use. They have no idea how to do it. And I think this is a challenge, and it's not that physicians can go use all the substances so they understand drug culture, but they're really, there's a difficulty with physicians and with scientific researchers they really do need to understand things in a little bit more of the nuanced ways that the consumers are using them in order to study them and or to develop products. So I think that's a need and that's something that we need to think about. I don't have any specific solutions. Oh, thank you, Dr. King. I think that sums it up really well. I, I thought that was just a brilliant uh, statement you made there. So unfortunately, we're running short on HLI time. So that'll about do it for our research discussion. We're going to take a short break and come back with our game for this episode. Stay tuned. At Marku and Aurora, we understand that navigating the investment landscape in cannabis and psychedelics is complex. We utilize our in-house expertise in science to support investors and innovators. Reach out to us to start a conversation about how we can help guide your investment decisions and prepare your next venture for success. And we're back. Welcome to today's game. Today, our group will be playing for the grand prize of helping to expand scientific thought. Now, while I could moderate this game, I am joined by one of the smartest plant people, professional plant nerd and author of Herbs for the Apocalypse, Sarah Russo, is going to host our game today. Welcome to the show, Sarah. Thanks, Jahan. I'm Sarah. I'm the creator of Herbs for the Apocalypse. And so what's that, you may ask? Well, it's a women-crafted, botanically-infused indie graphic novel. It is sponsored by Herbs for the Apocalypse and fueled by Herbs for the Apocalypse. 
So it takes place in a parallel universe about one millimeter away. It's a story about Sophia Spinoza, a dreamer rooted by her love of plant life, and her muses return the favor with whispers of the Earth's wisdom as she navigates the niggling faults of human existence by working at an apothecary in the apocalypse. She explores what it means to find peace of mind and acceptance. Throughout the graphic novel, plants chime in to give their perspective on how to survive the impending Armageddon. While many botanicals are mentioned in the story, there are 10 that get their own microphone. Their monologues speak truth to power along the way. One of these plants is the answer to the game we are about to play. Herbs for the Apocalypse is first being released in a Sunday comic style where a chapter per week is delivered to your inbox along with the soundtrack that fuels the pages. We are currently crowdfunding to make this wild ride a reality. But today, we have a special opportunity for you to play along. For those of you out there listening, check out the show notes to find a link to be entered to win a free Sunday comic subscription. All you need to do is follow the link and give the name of the plant whose name will come to at the end of the game. Oh, and if you feel so inclined, you can check out the website, herbsfortheapocalypse.com, and learn more about the project. Without further ado, let's get this game started. All right. Uh, thank you, Sarah. Uh, I've already signed up, so listener, I think you should too. Um, I'm gonna just going to start it off simply asking about this herb for the apocalypse. Um, you know, is it something you can typically find, uh, like at the Whole Foods natural product section. I'm not endorsing any rest, you know, place or anything. I'm just trying to think like commercial um, health food stores. Would you be able to find like a, a tincture of this herbal product potentially? Is it? Yeah. Yes, you could find it typically. Um, it's not common, but it's not rare either. Is it, um, is it a root? No. Is it sold as fresh herbal material? No. I think I know the answer to this, but is it uh, a controlled or scheduled substance at all? Uh, or um, has it had any uh, kind of negative highlights from the FDA? No. Mm. Hey, so it's it's commonly available in stores. It, well, it's not rare. It's not super common, but it is typically available. It's not a root. It's not typically sold as a fresh material in stores. And it's not on a, like a DA watch list, to paraphrase David's question. Um, interesting. Interesting. Is if, if there were a tincture, is it typically from a flower? No. Or, okay. No is it root? psychoactive? No. And by psychoactive, you mean like intoxicating impairment, right? Well, That's or does fun. it make you sleep? Does it make you sleepy or have an effect on your mental state in any way? No. I mean, I guess everything on third is our consciousness to some extent, but it, it doesn't <laughs> alter mine. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> okay. Fascinating. Um, hmm. Is it a... Is it, could it be considered like um, something that grows symbiotically? Like, I don't know if that's the right term. Yes. Hmm. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm trying to think because it's like, so it's not a flower, it's not a root. So it's like, it's, um, it's a stem, it's a leaf. 
well, let's 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 like team huddle here. Uh, oh, well, okay. So, so you know, what what is it? sorry? Yeah, that's, 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 let's go with that one. Do you want to ask that one, Nigam? Yeah. Is, uh, is, is it, it uh? Is it in? Let me just ask it. Is it in the plant kingdom? It kind of straddles kingdoms. Whoa! Is it lichen? Yes. <laughs> oh! We're getting closer. Okay. okay, we've narrowed in on a commercial lichen sold in a store near you. All right. Hmm. <laughs> um. Da, 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 is it? Is it used for in? Is it is ingestion an appropriate use of this product? Like versus topical, David. Yeah, versus topical or like an infuser. Uh, yes, it can be used topically or taken internally as well. Interesting. <laughs> is it um, is it typically used to? I, I don't know. Is it have um? Is it used for like GI issues? Is that one of the typical uses? Yes, that's one of the indications. Where where are where are we at? We're at like ten. Yeah, the first, I, I just don't know names of lichens. Yeah, well, it's it's open right. it's open internet. I'm about to I'm literally about to start like searching it. Um, yeah. Also, uh, Sarah, you're at we have. I think there's been like nine questions asked. The record is like I did this one uh, a while ago about like trying to guess some two C compounds, like really some obscure stuff, and I think we went to like seventeen questions. So see if you can, right. see if you can beat my record. We got a lot of lichens to guess now. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. <laughs> um, I want to ask where it grows, but I can't think of a yes or no way to ask that. You know, David, you have like a, a background in environmental sciences. So we're talking about something that's plant-like, fungi-like, a lichen. Um, what is, you know, you, you're the closest thing we have to environmental guy. I know, what do they um, typically grow on? Uh, I mean, rocks. Like I, I used to. We actually used uh, fun fact, uh, lichenometry. You can use to estimate the ages of deglaciation. That's where I first was exposed to lichens. Mm. Um, I'm I'm trying to pull up my brain from about 15 years so, ago. I'll ask this: uh, Does it grow on rocks? Is that typically where it grows, Sarah? Yes, it grows on rocks, amongst yeah. other places as well. Okay. Okay. Hmm. So I kind of want to ask this name just because it's a it's a funny option. Totally using the internet at this point, though. Full disclosure. <laughs> uh, there's one called Old Man's Beard. It's, that's it. <laughs> oh, that's it. Did Jackie win? Oh wow! It's, it's Nia, right? Yeah. Congratulations. <laughs> well done, Jackie. What what gave it away, Jackie? I'm curious. Was there an aha moment with that? Um, I mean, I, I tried to look up different lichen herbal supplements mm. and, and herbal remedies and things. And as soon as I saw that one popped up next to something that said foraging for Usnia, a super medicinal lichen. And so I was like, you know what? That seems like that's going to be mm-hmm. That's awesome. So S- Sarah, tell us a little bit more about Usnia um, and, and, you know, just... I thought it was a really fun game. We've never, we usually were guessing psychedelics. So this has been a great yeah. change. Um, but what, you know, you said it made it into the 10 herbs for the apocalypse. It gets its own monologue in the novel. Um, 
we asked a lot of questions about it, but we, you know, we didn't, there are a lot of questions we didn't ask about it. So, you know, tell us a little bit more about Usnia and then we can, uh, we can end the show. Okay, sure. Yeah. So Usnia is one of my, you know, top herbs for the apocalypse, just for our current times. When we're speaking about antibiotic resistance, for example, we need some alternatives. So Usnia, it's antimicrobial and it has affinity for bad bacteria, um, but leaves the good bacteria intact. So there are many um, pharmaceutical antibiotics that wipe out all the bacteria in our bodies. Some herbs even do that as well, Um, but Usnia doesn't. It kind of allows us to find homeostasis. So um, for example, if the pH in the body is out of whack, it's leaning one way or the other, it can help to regulate that. Um, Also, um, sometimes when people take traditional antibiotics, especially women, they can get yeast infections, for example, but Usnia can counteract that because it can actually neutralize and normalize the the whole system and organism in general. Um, And I find Usnia to be really an interesting herb, plant, lichen, whatever you want to call it, um, just because of the way it grows. So it often, it grows on rock, as we found earlier. Um, It can grow in the Arctic tundra as well. Um, And it is often found on trees, Um, And so that's where I've been able to see it. So actually, in fact, a lot of you probably have come across Usnia when walking in the woods. So that's kind of the the message behind the monologue is that open your eyes to what you normally don't see. Um, Because you might just see this weird kind of funny thing hanging off of a tree, but we're able to access that as medicine and it's free. Um, And actually, you know, you can harvest it yourself. I mean, obviously you want to have someone who knows that it, you can identify it accurately. Um, or, you know, if you have a book or you want to be sure that it's Usnia, there are some plants that look similar to Usnia. Um, Spanish moss is another example. Um, but if you open, you'll see these stringy kind of things hanging off of down and you, uh, can open it. And if you see the inside and it has a white, cord on the inside, that's a good indicator that it's Usnia. Um, And so a lot of the different herbs have many different properties, um, but this one specifically has affinity um, for the lungs um, and also the urinary tract. So in places that are dealing with fire season and things like that can be really helpful for to use in a cough remedy. Um, And so if you have a cough and and maybe a, a lung infection, it could be a helpful option. So this is completely ridiculous, but um, I got really interested in lichens as the source of dyes about three years nice. ago. And a lot of the, the tweeds in Scotland are actually, the, those colors are made from lichens. And if you expose, if you soak lichens in water for months, <clears throat> and then you expose them to ammonia in the presence of sunlight, you get these incredible magentas and purples. I have not yet embarked on this beyond buying a couple of natural dye books and collecting multiple sacks of lichen. I didn't know what they were, but literally one floor above me, I have like seven huge bags of this kind of lichen that you're talking about. So yeah. it's a crazy coincidence. It looks like they've got a ton of polyphenols and flavonoids and things. So that would make sense from the dye perspective and just lots of different um, yeah, compounds in there that are going to be UV active. So that's really cool. 
So additionally, this can be like a source of like how we make tie-dye in the apocalypse, right? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Franklin, maybe you can... Uh, pack up some samples and ship them to us so we can all uh, yeah it should extract a tincture here or something <laughs> yeah mm-hmm. call, call us if you need any help man call me and jackie we'll be we'll be right on that with you <laughs> yeah. <laughs> natural products as far as harvesting goes um you know the tincture is a good option it doesn't do well uh the usneas Usneic acid is hydrophobic, so it doesn't do well as a typical herbal infusion. So if you wanted to do a tincture, it works really well like that. And actually, as an oil extraction, that's probably going to be the most effective. I've, mm. I've taken the Usnea as a tincture, and I've taken it as an oil when I've done my own oil extraction. I found it to be even more effective as an oil extraction. Yeah, I found a really nice paper just from last year. It looks like it was sunflower oil when they did all of their analysis. So that would definitely make sense. Awesome. Well, I hope this is a a sign of many herbal games to come, but we're running a little short on time. I want to just say, you know, that's our show. Thanks for clicking, tapping, swiping, or however you're hearing this. Thank you to our trusty audio engineer. We appreciate your work. Thank you to Selena Lee, our cover artist that makes the custom artwork for each episode. Big thank you to Sarah Russo for taking time to join us for the game. Uh, Super fun. Also from Mark and Aurora, thank you to our participants and panelists franklin jackie david we really appreciate your time um, and we look forward to having you on a future episode again 